you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. My name is Dr. Dimitri. I'm a family doctor with a practice in Gatineau, Quebec and a practice in Ottawa, Ontario. I'm also a faculty lecturer at McGill. And today, Dr. Kevin is back and he's going to talk to us about cardiac risk stress stratification. But before talking about that, I just want to do a follow-up. Now, we did talk about fever in the newborn a couple of podcasts ago, and we were pretty adamant about doing a full workup. This is just a case that that sort of made it more real for me. There was a three-week-old boy in my practice, and he had, uh, you know, he'd come to the office. The only thing he had was a fever of 38.5. He was happy, smiling, you know, eating, nothing else. Uh, We sent him to Chio, and they actually did end up doing the lumbar puncture again. He looked fine at that time, and they found meningitis. Again, that's the tricky part with newborns. You get a really bad infection going, and... If you don't do the tests, you can miss it, yeah. And then you're in trouble. So just just uh, just uh, to make it to a real life case that we actually got a meningitis in uh, in a newborn with fever. Yeah, and uh, yeah, for those listeners who are out there not from, if you're from Canada, you'll know um, Chio is uh, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. It's found in Ottawa, world class uh, leading kind of center. But yeah, Dimitri, that's an excellent point uh, that just hits home the fact that. Again, to reiterate, when it comes to fever in newborns, you simply cannot use your physical and history alone to exclude serious pathology. This is why those protocols are in place. And if you have any doubts, just phone up to a grown-up. That's always my practice. And right. with that, with that, I'm going to segue into my introduction. I'm Kevin Milo. I'm not fancy like Dimitri. I guess I'm a little bit fancy like Dimitri. I'm a clinical lecturer at the University of Alberta out in Western Canada. I practice community emergency medicine, do a little bit of rural as well. And I'll be presenting the Emerge Perspective on our uh, podcasts. You know how in other episodes I'd said we're going to try to keep it to like bite-sized amounts? This one kind of got out of hand. I initially wanted it to be quite narrow, and it just kept growing like the monster that it is. So we're into some deep rabbit holes. Here goes. What we're going to cover is cardiac risk stratification for ischemic heart disease. In layman's terms that we all use in all practical language, a stress test. And you may say, ah, it's nothing. No, it's something. And regrettably, against my own personal life policy, we're going to have numbers and statistics here. And I can assure you, it is going to be in the simplest terms. Just ask my accountant. When it comes to me and numbers, not good. All right. Dimitri, are you all right if we get started on a bit of a deep dive? I'm ready. Uh, let, let's let's get it done. So apparently my apparently my six month old daughter is not, so she is going to be squawking up a storm. My wife is uh, also a physician and is busy working, which means I got the little one today. Yeah, so, and mine might mine might also chime yes, up from time to time. Yes. So we're really apologizing yeah, lots, for lots, this. Lots of squawky babies. Here here goes yeah. mine. I'll try the old fatherhood technique of television um, and candy for her. So. Okay, what are we going to be covering? We're talking about cardiac risk stratification. I'm going to explain this term a little bit more and why I'm not just throwing out the term stress test. What we are going to be covering is the definition of cardiac risk stratification, the approach to the patient presenting with symptoms of ischemic heart disease, 
when to use cardiac risk stratification, so it's indications, but when not to use it. We're also going to discuss the various modalities of cardiac risk stratification, but not all of them. So what we will not be covering in today's deep dive is non-ischemic heart disease. So you can use stress tests for all sorts of things like DHF, cardiomyopathies, arrhythmias, valvular disorders, some pulmonary disorders, I'm sure. And you can also use it in people who have known coronary artery disease in who you want to reassess functional status following a revascularization procedure or cabbage or something along those lines. But the bottom line is we're not touching on that today. What we're really going to focus on is the patient that you or I see in clinic or in the emergency department who presents with chest pain and we think this chest pain could be a result of coronary artery disease. So patient comes in to you saying, doctor, I'm having chest pain. All right. And you're obviously going to take a thorough history and physical. Okay. And you're going to order some tests. And depending on which setting you're working in, whether it's a clinic or the eMERGE, you're going to order different tests. Okay. What I'm getting at here is that you need to have an approach as to whether or not this chest pain is truly cardiac sounding or not. And regrettably, we simply don't have time today to explore the evidence-based history and physical examination behind chest pain. But in a nutshell, you want to rule in coronary artery disease with the history and physical, and you want to rule out other pathologies that can mimic it. Everything from benign pathologies like GERD to life-threatening things like pulmonary embolism or aortic dissection that may also overlap significantly with ischemic heart disease. So when do you send somebody for a stress test? What are the true indications? Well, if somebody has symptoms suggesting myocardial ischemia, number one, they need to be worked up to rule out an MI. And that means troponins. And almost always, that's going to incur, occur in hospital. There are a few family doctors out there. I have a colleague who's an outstanding family doctor. He does some rural, he does some eMERGE, he does clinic, he does hospitals, he does it all. And he gets stubborn patients that say, no, I don't need to go into hospital, just do my test here. So he orders an EKG, gives them an aspirin, orders a troponin, and they wait. And if the troponin's positive, he sends them right into hospital. That's sort of meeting somebody halfway. Do you do that, Dimitri? Is that part of your practice, troponins as an outpatient? You know, I've considered it, but I haven't done, I haven't started doing that yet. I have a colleague who does it. I, so I'm interested to hear what you think about this and, uh, and this talk to see if I can change my practice here. Yeah. The bottom line is, is that it's risky and you have to do a lot of documentation around it. You have to clearly document that you have advised the patient to go straight to the emergency department. So if you think they're having the real thing, the big jammer, they need to be sent into an emergency department. That means you give them an aspirin in your clinic. 160 chewed, at least, and you call an ambulance and send them in. But we all know we have stubborn patients who refuse that sort of thing. So it's not unreasonable, depending on your practice environment, depending on your level of comfort, to consider ordering troponins as an outpatient. Make sure they're either waiting in the clinic for the results or they are sitting by their phone. So, you know, you exclude coronary artery disease or, pardon me, an MI. There are also other things um, that you're going to be concerned about, and that is stable angina. So a patient comes in and goes, yeah, you know what, doctor, now that you mention it, every time I go to the gym and get on the exercise bike, I notice that after about 15 minutes or so, 
I start to get some tightness in my chest or my jaw starts to hurt or something along those lines. But no, it's not getting any worse. And no, I'm still able to function. And, and no, it's not happening right now. Well, those that's the person with that cl- kind of classic story for angina who, you know, needs to go for a stress test. And you don't need to send them into the eMERGE first. They can be referred straight from your office as an outpatient and get followed up within the next couple of weeks uh, with a cardiologist for a stress test. So then there are other indications, again, valvular heart disease, cardiac arrhythmias, heart failure, all that. We're not really going to discuss that because, again, it's just too broad for today's topic, which is really going to focus on sort of that undifferentiated patient presenting with chest pain who needs cardiac risk stratification. So when do you not send somebody in for a stress test? Like when is it not a good idea that this person who's having chest pain or whom you suspect coronary artery disease is the cause of their symptoms. And remember, it's bigger than just chest pain. We know that in women, elderly, diabetics, they can present with many different symptoms, such as weakness, presyncope, dizziness, fatigue, the list goes on. But when do you not send somebody for a stress test? Why don't you throw some out? Well, the main issue with, with is, is if there's a, to me anyways, if there's a high chance of a false positive on doing the stress test. That's excellent. We're going to cover that later. The firm, the hard contraindications are if they've had an MI, they can't have a stress test, okay? Or at least they should be in stressed as an inpatient with the cardiology team and leave that up to the cardiologist's discretion. They're having unstable angina. So in contrast to our six-year-old guy that gets on the treadmill or exercise bike and notices after 15 minutes that his chest or jaw starts to hurt, person who says, yeah, I was having that six months ago, but now I get it as soon as I go up a flight of stairs and I feel lightheaded, like I might pass out. Well, that's unstable angina. It's a progressive set of symptoms. They can't be stressed. There's an ongoing process there that's getting worse. You can't just send them cold for a stress test. If they have uncontrolled arrhythmias, right? So, you know, if this patient should be getting a you know, defibrillator or something like that, you probably want to have that dealt with first before popping them on in a treadmill. Valvular stenosis, so aortic stenosis would be a big, big contraindication if they have significant aortic stenosis. Uncontrolled heart failure, acute endocarditis, myocarditis, pericarditis. That's just a broader discussion of if it's not heart and you haven't done your job and you just said the first thing that came to your head was coronary artery disease, but you didn't consider your differential, which includes pericarditis, myocarditis, pulmonary embolism, aortic dissection, um, rupture of the esophagus, even, you know, occasional pneumonias. Um, other pathologies exist in the chest that are serious and life-threatening and should not be evaluated with stress tests. They should be evaluated with the appropriate imaging and consultation. So what, I'm, what they're really getting at here with these contraindications is that chest pain is a lot bigger than just coronary artery disease and GERD. The other big, big reason not to send somebody on a treadmill is if they physically can't do it. Um, that's specific um, to all forms of exercise stress. We're going to get into that a little bit further. So bad arthritis, bad pulmonary capacity, morbid obesity, any number of those factors where they're not going to be able to properly stress themselves, then test is going to be non-diagnostic. Let's go with a case. These are the cases that always ask, dump me. You get a 45-year-old female, walks in, in my case, to the emergency department, complains of central chest burning, not heaviness, not tightness, not squeezing. It's burning, but it radiates to the left arm. It's both positional and exertional, but not pruritic. It's relieved by rest, but not by nitro. So 
you do the workup, or I do the workup, and in this case, I did do troponin, EKG, chest x-ray. I exclude other pathologies, and I go, okay, well, I don't know what it could be. This patient's effectively low risk. Maybe she's got hypertension. What do you do with this? Well, this is the one that you're going to send for cardiac risk stratification. And again, I keep using the long term rather than just a straight out stress test. The reason being is that stress test is somewhat vague and limited. Stress test is often when we say it, we automatically think of somebody who's on a treadmill with EKG VT hooked up to them. And what it's really not saying is what are we doing? Well, we're not stressing the heart per se. What we're really trying to assess for is whether or not this patient has underlying ischemic heart disease despite having no EKG findings and no elevated troponins or biomarkers. Does that make sense at this point, Dimitri? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I even tell all of my patients that are going for stress tests, I kind of tell them this one line, and you're welcome to borrow it, but I tell patients, and I quote, in the ER, I can test to see whether or not you have had a heart attack, but I can't test to see whether or not you have heart disease, or problems with your coronaries. This is why I'm sending you for a stress test. So there's a differentiation there. I'm able in the ER to exclude serious pathologies like aortic dissection and pulmonary embolism. I'm able to exclude an acute MI, but I really cannot tell you, the patient sitting in front of me, whether or not you're, you have coronary artery disease. Now, in the patient who's 65 years old, has had an MI before, smokes, cholesterol, diabetes, and positive family history, well, I know you've got coronary artery disease. But it's those patients who have some risk factors, some concerning story, but have no proven pathology that we struggle with. And these are the ones you have to, quote, risk stratify. These are the patients that you have to decide through a stress test or other something, whether or not they have coronary artery disease, or they don't have coronary artery disease, or they might have coronary artery disease. So what are the different types of cardiac risk stratification? So the one we all go to is an exercise EKG. That's the proper term for it, or elect exercise electrocardiogram. Okay, that's where Patient is on the brusque protocol, which is walking up a treadmill that progressively inclines for seven minutes and increased speeds, and they're trying to reach a target heart rate of 85%. And then the cardiologist or whoever is doing the stress test is looking for EKG, EKG changes, or alternatively, whether the patient develops chest pain, increasingly shortness of breath, mass is stopped. Okay. That's an exercise stress test. Okay. But obviously, there's more to it than that. We're going to get into it. But that's the sort of the go-to main sort of tool that we use to assess most chest pain that comes to the emergency department who needs additional cardiac risk stratification. Okay. The benefit is it's relatively low cost. It's relatively safe. It's also not associated with any radiation exposure. When can you not use exercise EKG specifically? Do you know when, Dimitri, and why this matters for, for family doctors and emergency physicians? Well, I mean, I, I think you, you mentioned it. I mean, if if the person cannot exercise, for example, if it's an older person who has really bad osteoarthritis or, you know, somebody who 
you know, who, who can't walk, who needs uh, a walker, you can't really do stress EKGs at all. It's, it's not something you can ask them to do. You can't do a treadmill test. Correct. Right, treadmill, exactly. Yeah, there um, are other ways to stress people, and I'm going to get into it with the other modalities. But yeah, that's the bottom line. Specific to stress EKG, if they've got an abnormal EKG at baseline, it's going to be very hard to do a stress EKG. Does that make sense, Dimitri? Yes, big it, ones, it does. Yeah. Big ones being left bundle branch block, a paced rhythm, significant left ventricular hypertrophy with repolarization abnormalities, so T waves are inverted, particularly in the lateral loop, ST segment depression, or ventricular pre-excitation syndromes. Okay. Um, and so in that case, if you're referring them to a cardiology clinic, they have to be a cardiology clinic that has a capacity to do one of these other types of tests. So what are the other types of tests? Well, the other big go-to one is a stress echocardiography, okay, or a stress echocardiogram. And what that is, is similar sort of thing. You can do it with a treadmill, you can do it with exercise, you can do it on a bike, or you can give them a chemical, but you get the heart rate going up, and instead of doing an EKG, you do an ultrasound of the heart. You do an echocardiogram. And what you're looking for are wall motion abnormalities. Okay, you know, diastolic and systolic function. And the benefit behind stress echocardiography is number one, it's no radiation. Number two, it's safe. But number three, especially in young patients or atypical presenters, you may pick up other pathologies. So if they've just got bad mitral valve prolapse, that might be the cause of their symptoms. Or they've got a hokum, like cardio, you know, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or they've got, you know, significant pulmonary artery hypertension. Well, then you're going to pick these things up. And so, you're, yes, your stress test might be non-diagnostic, but maybe you've picked up some real pathology because they were having real symptoms. So, again, there might be some utility in your, in your sort of lower-risk patients or your younger patients who are atypical presenters. And, like I said, you can either use a chemical to induce the um, elevated heart rate and, and inotropy, or you can use exercise. Right, the third one, okay, so we've covered stress EKG, uh, we've covered stress echo. Now the third one is stress radionuclide myocardial perfusion imaging, or a MIBI. And why not cover what does MIBI stand for? MIBI stands for, and here it is, all the way back to undergrad organic chemistry, methoxy isobutyl isonite trial, which is basically the fancy thing that they inject into the patient undergoing the MIBI scan. It swirls around in their bloodstream. It's a little bit radioactive. And then they do spectroscopy of the heart or basically taking pictures of the heart, watching where this dye is uptaken in the heart and whether it's reversible or non-reversible ischemia. It can also give a functional assessment of the heart because it's essentially it's you're lighting up the heart and you're seeing how it moves. And again, these patients can be stressed with exercise or they can be stressed with a compound that either makes the heart go faster or beat harder, or something that dilates coronary arteries and allows this dye to flow in. Now, I am not getting into all of the different types of stress, um, like pharmacologic stress agents. It's just not relevant for us, and we've got to make time here. So we're going to keep moving. But bottom line is you get injected with two things here. And this one is excellent for patients who really you know, in whom you're trying to assess the myocardium or you, you think that there's there's been a coronary artery event that's happened or you want to follow them serially. Very often used in older patients as well. 
Um, the next one, number four, CT angiogram. We see this once in a while. Again, this is coming from a Canadian perspective. Dimitri, do you have a lot of patients that go for CT angiograms? It's not much different than a standard CTA. You just put the dye in the veins, you know, wait till it swirls into the coronary arteries, and then you start doing a CT of the heart. You know, I've had, I've maybe had one or two. It's usually the cardiologists who do them. It's, I've never ordered one myself. Yeah, this is, it, it's got a high sensitivity. So this is usually at the point where the patient's having these non-diagnostic, uh, uh, you know, other non-diagnostic tests. And so the cardiologist is suspicious there's a lesion in there. And this is the last stop before a full-on angiogram. You probably used a little bit more in the States. I'm also today not covering MRIs of the heart or any or PET scans of the heart or anything funky like that. We simply rarely, rarely see those in Canada. I don't think they have a meaningful impact on um, frontline care or are evidence-based. Okay, so let's stop and recap really quickly. What we've covered so far is definitions of cardiac risk stratification, when to use them, when not to use them. And we've covered four frontline modalities and their pros and cons to each. All right. So I think this is a good place to stop. In part two of the podcast, which should be up on the website in a couple of weeks, Kevin will go deeper into the rabbit hole and talk about some of the, the raw numbers, some of the caveats, and some of the issues with diagnosing heart problems and doing cardiac risk stratification. Again, we want to keep these short and to the point. So uh, thank you for listening. And Dr. Kevin, thank you for joining us this week. Thank you.